0: All right. We're on record and we're, I'm going to switch back and forth. Uh, Yasuhiko, just to let you know, um, between the, the, and you're familiar with zoom. I was cool. It was cool when, you know, months ago we talked about doing this and you said like, I love zoom. And, um, uh, so you're familiar with it. Uh, I can switch back and forth from where when we're all three on the screen, but when you talk, I'm going to click the thing. And so you're going to be front and center. Uh, that's what I've decided to do with this. Um, uh, so uh, just a brief introduction, you know, uh, we're not long into this Andy Curzon and I, Richard Nikolai, um, but we don't compromise. We just get, we get only interesting people that are truly Someone that is worth listening to. And um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you this. I've known of Yasuhiko for 29 years. I, wow. first, I first read of him in 1990 when I was living in France. And he knows what that's a, all about. The Philosophical Zero, a 30-page essay. And it blew my mind. It blew my mind. It, 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 I, I don't say that you know it changed my life or anything like uh, you know a Bible or a religious experience, all that. But I was going through a, a transformation of my own at the time, and I was this. This is stuff I've never heard before, and how he relates the zero to okay let me put it this way, try to add a column of numbers in Roman numerals. And well, can yes, I start with something,
1: can I start with something that Richard, yes. which is Go ahead. Uh, a question to Yasahiko, which is just the idea of a Kuhnian paradigm shift and the view that a lot of people take that it's just someone having a view on the world and then seeing another bit of information and shifting to another view on the world and totally changing and I think Thomas Kuhn, what, well, what, what was meant was actually that you're incorporating a new bit of information and that shift is actually into a more sophisticated set of, uh, of, of perceptions. And uh, how did that relate to what Richard was saying? I was wondering what your thoughts on that yesterday.
2: Well, <coughs> combining the two of you's uh, comments, <coughs> I think what Richard was talking about was when uh, he read my uh, Philosophical Zero Essay, uh, some form of paradigm shift took place in him. And going back to uh, Thomas Kuhn, uh, he talks about uh, normal science uh, meeting with anomalies. And when you have experiences or observations, that cannot be explained by the existing paradigm that sent uh, scientists into crisis and that's when the, what he calls paradigm shift takes place you know paradigm is a socially accepted model so you can come up with new model but it's not going to be a paradigm unless Sufficient number, sufficient number of people agrees with you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> start using the model. So you know it takes some time before people start to have a, a paradigm shift because uh, you know anomaly takes place, and uh, you know uh, some scientists or philosophers they begin to think about that uh, anomaly and try to come up with new system of uh, interpretations or explanations. Then they develop a model. Then other people join and they begin to examine that model. Eventually, uh, they find that model to to be functional. Then it become a paradigm. <clears throat> so, so I don't know what else uh, you need to uh, we need to go into this, but Maybe. Uh, that is, the, you know, uh, original uh, thesis of. Uh, um, uh, Thomas Kuhn's uh, book, yes, uh, it's it a long time ago he published that one, and uh, I remember reading it. And of course, uh, Thomas Kuhn's paradigm shift became a paradigm. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, and um, everybody talking about paradigm shift. Paradigm yeah. shift.
0: <laughs> well, we need to, we need to start a little bit by that because I, 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 I actually spoke with Andy, and I had a little chat like about a half an hour before this began and said, well, how do we frame this? Right. And um, I thought one good way to frame this would be to speak of culture. Um, And Andy made a great point as we were talking. He's like, the UK, it's an Island nation, Japan, it's an Island nation, both, both island nations, small island nations, I mean infinitesimal on a geopolitical sort of scale, were able in the in the 20th century, well, you know, going back even more for UK, but Japan, the Japanese are quick learners and I, I must point out that I lived in Japan for five years from 1984 to 1989 um, in, uh, in Hayama, japan uh Mm. just down just down the street from the emperor's summer palace nice place nice place yeah Mm. um so it is it is very interesting um to integrate that into a, a an entire kind of cultural paradigm so andy would you agree that let's let's let yasuhiko tell us about culture in order to frame uh the discussion that goes on further
1: yeah just the idea of island culture and uh, how he, maybe you start with how you grew up Yasiko, and some of the things that you went through that maybe wouldn't have happened on uh, on land or your view on that
2: well uh before i talk about my life <clears throat> just want before i forget you know uh language is a meta paradigm language is a folk model of reality that the group of people share so to learn new language is almost like acquiring a new paradigm and it is uh, people who don't have the uh, bilingual or trilingual abilities it's very difficult to see different language is a different paradigm
1: yeah
2: and uh japanese and english uh uk had far greater uh impact on the geopolitical sense, uh, because of the you know, English language spreading all over the world, and people acquiring that uh, meta-paradigm uh, through to think. And uh, so, so comparing Japan and uh, England is interesting. But uh, at the same time, the impact that uh, England had is different from the impact that Japan had, because only Japanese speak Japanese. <laughs> <laughs> and, and many other nations, United States, Australia, all over the world, you know, uh, even in the India, it is uh, uh, official language. And that is the impact of uh, English language, meta-paradigm that had on the whole scale of the planet. So uh, that's interesting subject to talk about. Anyway, uh, while I grew up, I was born in a very tiny uh, farm farming village In the northern central part of Japan the entire population was about 200 50 families in three different uh, uh, sections competing with each other (laughs) yeah there was no um, bookstore or library and uh, so people are Uneducated farmers, <clears throat> and uh, so I grew up in nature. Today people talk about organic food, but I did eat organic food because that was only thing we had. <laughs> and yeah. um, then went to a, a school. Only thing I remember about elementary school, the public school, was the. Uh, profound sense of boredom and loneliness. And I remember how this 50 minutes of stupid class, how long is gonna last? (laughs) (laughs) Said like, forever. (laughs) And uh, let's see, when was that? Uh, Yeah, fifth grade, we had this
3: uh, teacher, uh, Japanese language and literature teacher, Miss Hayashi who actually introduced me into reading, Hermann Hesse and others.
2: And she was also extremely creative in, his, in her teaching, that you know, uh, we were asked to read and write the commentary on the books that we are, we are reading. And that was the initial you know, uh, introduction into some form of culture.
1: Can I ask you how old you were when you got into Hermann Hesse? I'll tell you a very short story, which is that when I w- went to Eton College, uh, I got a prize um, for English, for an English piece of work. And my father brought me, me two um, Hermann Hesse books. I think I was 14, mm-hmm. and it was The Glass Bead Game and Narcissus and Goldman.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And so I haven't read Steppenwolf. I haven't read a lot of them, but I've read those two. And I, when I started Narcissus and Goldman at 14 and a half, or however old I was, it, it genuinely changed me. I'd never read anything that uh, evocative, that kind of. It, it was yeah, it was unbelievable. But it was a, I think it was a really good time to read it. it. Is sort of thirteen to sixteen, kind of that pubescent time. What are you, What's your experience with Hermann? Well, you know,
2: how old was I? I think was, I was ten years, ten years old. She was, she was great. <laughs> okay, so I guess. And, and, uh, and, uh, no, 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 no. And uh, the book I the book <laughs> I read was the uh, Benista Wheel.
1: Okay. You okay. know the
2: joke it is, yes. Japanese translation, of course, and uh, the Japanese are into translation, so you know it, it was pretty good translation.
1: Before you go on about Herman Hesse, I just want to say to everyone it's not easy reading, okay? This is it's for a very intellectual, I- intermediate, or but the um... books that
2: you're mentioning are very intellectual, but uh, the Will was a simple, basically a story. There's a deeper layer to this, but you know it was understandable for you know ten year old, and then in the same uh, grade. There was a uh, Mr. Kuamara, uh, uh, who was an interesting guy. He uh, only taught science and history, and he came back later as a history teacher. But at that time, he was a science teacher for us, and uh, uh, he didn't want to teach what is in the in the textbook, and he liked to ask questions and. Uh, he asked this question, you know, uh, when we were studying the uh, seaweed <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in the ocean. And he said, you know, look at this uh, seaweed, uh, color distribution, the, on, the, on the surface it is green and you go to, go, go to the deep in depths, you know, the color changes and then, you know, the bottom is uh, more like a brown, dark. Why? A complete silent, silence in the room.
3: And I was just thinking, mm, and I remember well,
2: First of all, the green, you know, the trees are green, so it is closer. Uh, anyway, it just came to me, the notion of a spectrum of light. Somehow, because I remember the, you know, the, uh, uh, the, the uh, rainbow, and that we already learned, so the combination of colors. So, huh, maybe some of those uh, colors, you know, reach farther or something. And it was a com- totally correct answer, but the fundamental idea was correct. And I remember you eu- being euphoric. It's like uh, Archimedes, you know, f- discovering this, uh, you know, uh, scientific uh, truth. It's like, a, wow! And the two, two experiences of reading a uh, essay and, uh, you know, writing, that start to think about life and having the, uh, uh, epiphany on something about that nature deeply impressed upon me. That was the first time I may an experience of thinking for the first time in my life.
1: So I said, and, I said that Herman Hesse, he turned me from a reader into a writer. Uh-huh. So I, I was just a, an, you know, I was a sponge for encyclopedias and I'd read all the statistics and all the different, you know, dangerous spiders and the tallest trees and mm-hmm. all these names and that, you know, the dates of these battles and things. And then I read Narcissus and Goldman and I started thinking about literature, thinking about classics, thinking about poetry, reading uh, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, my favorite poem is called Frost at Midnight. Betwixt the tufts of snow beneath the mossy apple tree, uh, the, the nigh nice, the nice thatched sun thaw. It's just, it's just really milky language. And so I think it was, um, it was Hesse that, that really allowed me to go into that world of literature and pull Ooh. out this, these things that can be parallel into science, into philosophy, into meaning, Ooh. into self-growth, into community growth. Mm-hmm. It's just another one of those portals.
2: Yeah, you know, uh, probably you grew up in a very uh, educated, cultural environment. And uh, you are in the internet age. So, you know, uh, in some way you are privileged and uh, it is, and you are utilizing it in a beautiful way, in a very uh, sincere way, and uh, maybe Richard and I, work from different generation. How I studied was, uh, you know, uh, look at the indexes of the books, and then okay, those are books that this author wrote, and then go to the library and start to find. So it was like a
0: extra time it took. Yes, please. I mostly. I mostly read, um, well, when I did start reading, uh, as a young man, um, you know, when I was very young, I, I I assume it's really, I lived 100 yards away, or 100 meters away from my grandfather's shop, who was a painter, a sign painter, an artist. My grandfather was an artist, so that, I'd like to say that that somewhat takes the edge off of me a little bit. My grandfather was an artist because, you know, I have a a certain personality. Um, But my grandfather was an artist and um, an Idaho Mormon. Now, that's a very interesting sort of thing um, in itself. But he was not, you know, he wasn't a ridiculous religious type of person. He was a he was a pragmatic man, um, and uh, you know I could say I it was cool growing up. I could say, Grand, uh, Grandpa, draw me a pony." He'd take a piece of paper. He, you know, I, I can't. I am not an artist. I am not an artist in that way. In terms of I, you know, I know I have no sense of the shading and all of that. I've tried a little bit. But it just doesn't interest me that much. It, I, and I'm glad that there are people that that in, that that such a thing that that form of art, you know, apart from literature, you know, you have literature, you have music and you have architecture. You have, uh, you know, ver- all these various forms of art. And uh, I can't do any of them. I can only write acerbically uh
1: non-fiction isn't it interesting that you're talking well, able to do art I, I sort of thought the same about me and then it's like singing i couldn't sing and i couldn't paint even though i
0: i can sing i can did, sing you know,
1: I can yeah sing. and i started to sing and i could and then i'm going to start to paint and i think i will it's i think a lot of it is um about tension and obviously it's easy when you've learned younger if you've got those those sort of entrained skills
0: it's but kind of embarrassing it, to say but um but when I was a kid growing up, I was a, I was a legitimate uh, choir boy, you know. Um, I was a uh, I was a tenor until um, the voice changed, and then I became a bass in the choir. But I loved doing the harmony in a choir. I I adored it, you know. And we would practice over and over and over again, you know, in the church. You do it for like. Especially for like a special event, you know, like the holidays, like to do the Katata, the what is it, the katata, you know, and and performance with all the other people. And I spent I spent so many years uh, ridiculing that kind of uh, uh, connection.
3: Well, what was that what was you get on-
0: from other people? Um, yeah in doing the, that sort of performance in a setting that is cultural, and we still have to get to culture, but I want, I, you know, um, I, I want Yasahiko needs to weigh in on this. You see now the
2: three, you can see the three uh, processes of enculturation. You know, it's very interesting because one is America, one is Japan, and one is England. Strangely different generations between uh, Richard and me, but about basically the same. And uh, how old are you, Andy?
3: What thirty-three.
2: How old are you, Andy?
1: Thirty-three.
2: Yeah. So entirely different uh, yeah. generation. And I'm. And, uh, so you see three processes of this enculturations, At least you two share the same language. But you see all those processes of enculturations. We want you, when you observe we be, not only we learn languages, we also start to, you know, uh, through the experiences, we begin to make some assumptions.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And, and assumptions are on the basis of all uh, forms of uh, uh, paradigm. And, uh, you know, uh, so it is interesting to go, go back and forth about three of those three processes, you know, it's very interesting. So anyway, uh, in my case, uh, so then went to public junior high school, and then in junior high school they begin to do all those tests. Japanese uh, now Koreans and Chinese all all those oriental cultures or maybe India too. We are into taking tests. It's like uh, education equals taking tests. Uh, Awful, awful system because you know uh, it is nothing to do with your wanting to learn or curiosity. It is how High the grade you can actually score, and it determines uh, what kind of schools you go next and what kind of uh, you know job you will have in the future. But anyway, uh, at that time, not now, but at that time, I had uh, photographic memory, so getting the good score was very easy. Actually, if I didn't get the perfect score, my teacher used to say, "What happened to you? You know, 90, you got ninety-eight. What happened?" <laughs> so, <laughs> and, uh, and then, so that we, I just go to junior high school is a three, uh, elementary school coming together. And there are about six, uh, six, uh, junior high school in one city. And then all junior high school compete against each other. There's a unified test to take. We compete which school is the best and also who is number one. And, you know, uh, I became number one student in the whole city and the whole state. And I'll tell you, it is a tremendous pressure. Yeah. Tremendous pressure.
0: How Especially you when you are-
2: uh... How old were you approximately yes. when you were... You are forced to uh, take tests on things that are not extremely interesting. Yeah, And uh, that really uh, brought me to some kind of a existential uh, crisis. Yes. So fulfilling uh parents and teachers uh expectations yeah and not living something that i want to live for they're doing Look, it so on the fifth grade i had the experience of needing to think for the first time and the discovery uh, discovery and also uh, I, I, I failed to mention uh i got into studying mathematics and i loved solving problems, you know, uh, when uh, I was like, uh, let's see, seventh grade, I said, seventh grade, uh, really got into this, you know, uh, my uh, our math teacher has something to do, so he put the three German uh, questions, which he learned in college, thinking that nobody would solve it. And uh, by the end of the uh, 15 minutes, I saw those three, three questions, I went to him, look, this is my answer, and he got a little annoyed, But then. He took me th- that weekend to a bookstore to buy a book that I would enjoy, which was the, this thick book on the geometry. Uh, uh, one, and that's the uh, text he used when he was studying uh, uh, geometry in, in, in his university. But anyway, was somewhat extremely difficult, like uh, after one week. You were <laughs> like a... Um... So anyway, I had that experience of, you know, Joy of thinking and joy of discovery, and then uh, have to go through this uh, awful examination test and being compared with other people. It's really, really yeah. pressure. So yeah.
0: yeah, you you were you were you. It's it strikes me that uh, that you were uh, like uh, to use an, a a thoroughly um, American metaphor. You were a subject in a rodeo, right? You. Uh, uh-huh. You had to perform, and to the vicarious pleasure of parents, family, brother, sister, everything. It's like, look at Yasuko. Oh, he's so great. Da da da. But and you're the one. You're you're like the uh, you're like the um, you know the rodeo animal uh, having to perform.
3: You see, uh, like Andy, who is brilliant.
2: Times if you go to Eton, you'll meet some other people who are, you know, pretty brilliant. But yeah. imagine the being in an environment you by far the, far the, the smartest, it the is book. not a good in environment. <laughs> 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 but anyway, anyway, what happened is that around the age of uh, 14, I had real existential crisis. And begin to think about really committing suicide. It was too much. I was not, you know, it was like, as a kid, I, have, I want to fulfill the p- parents' expectations. At the same yeah. time, it is not fun at all. And again, I had an amazing teacher. Uh, he was an English teacher, who was also the coach for our baseball team. He was an awful baseball uh, coach because our team never won a single, <laughs> single game. <laughs> but he was a decent math teacher, and i uh, sorry, uh, English teacher. But, it was, but he was, at heart, a poet, and also a, Buddha, a Buddhist priest. He gave me this book, um, Colin Wilson's The Outsider, in Japanese translation. Yasuo yeah. Nakamura was the translator. And uh, that opened up amazingly, you know, it's like a new world, because all the books he mentions I've never read, all the authors I've never, you know, can't, Hegel. Uh, Ayn Rand. I, uh, I, I don't remember if he mentioned Ayn Rand. He may, I don't know. Uh, and, uh, and Heidegger, you know, those people. And uh, also he has, uh, anyway, Dostoevsky. So opened up all those things. So I read that book and begin to read some uh, philosophy books. And begin to ask this question, you know, uh, what is the purpose of my life?
3: Because I'm living their life, not my life. I want to live my life. And so,
2: what does this my life mean? So, who am I? And the fact is the purpose of my life. Then I came to think you know, well, I am a human being amongst many uh, billions. So, m- I must, you know, then. Uh, Element in the big set called humanity. So let's see what is the purpose of human life. And who am I? It's unique about me? If I can answer those two questions, then maybe I may know the purpose of my life. Then let's say human life is a purpose, of, uh, the part of uh, life. So what is the purpose of life? And what is unique about human life? But life is a part of the existence. So what's the purpose of existence? And I realized that in order for me to know the purpose of my life in the way I was thinking, I need to know everything. <laughs> purpose of universe.
0: Can and then, you, oh my God. <laughs> can I ask you a question? Yes. Uh, Hiko. so, I mean, like I said, I came across you in 1990, and I came across you uh, amongst a collection of, of works, uh, by a damn a professional poker player, essentially. And I, you know, um, I respect your privacy, and I know this is not. Uh, I, I, I just, I, I don't. I, let me rephrase that. I don't know, but I suspect it's not a part of stuff you talk about. But that's where you know. That's where I uh, came. Yeah, uh, yeah I, I
2: understand. I understand your interest, and we'll get it, uh, We can talk about it. But you know, before I, I can talk about, it, I have to talk about what I'm going to talk about now. <laughs> if All you right. don't mind, <laughs> that's fine. So, so you know, for t- two years, from the age 14 to 16, I really had a dark night of the soul, as they say. And uh, on the on the surface you know, I was still performing as a good student. But internally, I was in deep depression and uh, agony, uh, torment. And uh, I went to this uh, high school, like Eton, in the sense that they're not, not as well known as Eton, but a uh, group of uh, pretty uh, uh, smart kids coming together, kind of high school. I went there because I can leave home because I have to be. I cannot. I cannot go from my home to that school. It's too far away. That's the reason, actually. But anyway, I went there. So I was living alone, away from my parents. And two two days before my sixteenth birthday, I decided to commit suicide. Really, because you know I did not. Uh, uh, it was too much of a. I couldn't answer, as I told you. Well, I came to realize I need to know everything before I can know the purpose of my life. And uh, I can't believe that everybody else is living their lives without knowing their purpose. At the same time, I cannot continue to go on with this, you know, uh, 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 fulfilling people's uh, expectations either. So I, well, I, it was two days before my birthday, Saturday. And my birthday is a national holiday. So there are three days uh, day off. And uh, I said, OK, let's find a way to commit suicide in such a way that nobody would ever expect a uh, uh, suspect that uh, I have committed suicide. Perfect way of dying in such a way that people don't know that how I died. And I, so I, I let go of my attachment to life, really.
3: I was actually very calm, now very calmly thinking how to die. And instead of finding the answer to the question, how to die physically, I actually, in a way, died. And I had an epiphany. You can say spiritual experience, some people say enlightenment experience.
2: Uh, i don 't think the sixteen year olds can really have an enlightenment experience, so I would say it is more like an epiphany and uh, I realize the purpose of my life, actually the purpose of life itself and uh, that's that 's really like a turning point. I stop being a good student and begin to enjoy my life. <laughs> somehow somehow. Uh, I became like you, Andy. I don't give a damn about what other people thought of me, and uh, even if my parents are not happy with my life, that's okay because I am fulfilling the cosmic purpose of my life. <laughs> and uh, and uh, but on the other hand, some people start to of think I'm uh, going a little crazy because you know I uh, I begin to say things that are out of this world. Mm. You know, and, uh, people are concerned. Maybe I really become insane. But Andy, I was much Andy. more sane than ever before. I was much more sane than ever before. And those people who are yeah. uh, who believe they are sane were actually insane. You know, the whole world became like an insane asylum, run by the most insane people. All right. And, uh, and- I was the uh, only person who who was sane there. But uh, they thought I was insane. But anyway.
0: All right, Andy.
2: That's when I discovered uh, Zen, and I began to uh, meet with Zen masters. Who understood me? So that's how I got into you know, Buddhism and Zen. you know. So I studied the more uh, Western, and then after the epiphany experience, I started studying more of the Eastern philosophy, and then I began to hang around with Zen masters. oldest one was 78, the youngest one was 46. So I was like uh, 16, 17, 18, you know, I was a kid and they loved me. And then that was the community I found for the first time in my life.
0: Let me quickly, what about, what about let me, uh, Andy, wait a second. Let me quickly interject in, in, and that is because um, wh- what happened uh, in 1990 and after when I had read stuff that Yasuhiko had written, the thing that struck me is like is like yeah i've read western and eastern a little bit here and there i've never ever encountered a single person who you know they're all they're all their own thing you know you're eastern or you're western i mean even even you know i mean there's i don't know that there's i don't know besides Yasiko, if there's any e- those who are uh intimately aware of Eastern philosophy who actually know anything about Western, you know, uh Yassi, you can quote Thomas Paine in his sleep. Uh Ayn Rand, <laughs> Heidegger, Kant, uh Aristotle, uh, uh Plato, he you know, um uh his and his favorite uh, um um uh Bruno Giunaro Bruno right uh Copernicus he 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 can do this in his sleep i have never that's what makes that is what is so interesting uh about him because he into he, he he seeks to integrate eastern and western philosophy and uh, and uh, what's his name uh, ken wilber can just go fuck himself because that is not uh what a guy like Ken Wilbur is about, and I've read plenty of him too uh so so for a long time, Yasuhiko's been my guy for integrating like well, why do they think that way, and we think this way, and everything and Yasuhiko is kind of like this uh, kind of like this uh what what how could I put it a uh um a unifying sort of force in both. Um, and I think he's, he's, uh, he's better than Sam Harris who fakes at it. Okay. So that's what I wanted to interject. Uh,
2: do you know that, uh, probably, so after I met uh, Zen masters and got into Buddhist semin- seminary, actually Zen Buddhist seminary, and I uh, got uh, lots of 11 hours and also lots of reading on the Buddhist scriptures and Taoist. And then, uh, they sent me to India to study uh, Indian philosophy. And so I had to study, uh, learn English. And uh, I begin to realize that actually English was a better language for me to express my thought than Japanese. Uh, English is more logically structured. It has a tremendous vocabulary. And it is the language of uh, Shakespeare. So you can uh, write beautifully. It's b- beautiful writing is very important to me. At the same time, you can remain logical. And you can have very subtle, finer distinctions in the cho- uh, choice of la- uh, uh, words. So uh, I really start to love the language, uh, English language, number one. And also so it was much easier for me to, you know, uh, restudy English than, Study Sanskrit. <laughs> it's a well, lot. Have you,
1: have you uh, read a lot of Shakespeare?
2: No, o- only few. The original, ori- I have read all Shakespeare in Japanese translation. I have read a uh, few uh, original, like Hamlet and King Lear and stuff like that. Not all so of we- them. I have actually all Shakespeare, but only a few. Yeah,
1: I, I absolutely love King Lear, but when I was um, 10 at school, we had a poetry competition and Ooh. I used to do a lot of declamation and I, could, I had a good memory in English. And so I learned, well, we all had to pick a poem to speak and people did, you know, funny ones, silly ones. And I said, I want to do Shakespeare because I mm-hmm. like. I was reading his greatest works, And someone who lived next to me was an actor called Bob Peck. A by actor, I mean someone who could teach me to project my voice as a 10 year old prepubescent, you know, sort of thing. And I looked up this scene at the beginning of Richard II, Act One, Scene One, where Duke Bolingbroke, you've got Richard II, and you've got Duke Bolingbroke, who's one of his best friends and is his chief advisors. But Bolingbroke has done something to annoy the, other, annoy the other lords. And so if if Richard lets him off, the other, the other lords and barons are gonna turn against him. So this is Duke Bolingbroke pleading for his life to um, King Richard. And he says this, he says, Myself I throw, dread sovereign at thy foot. My life thou shalt command, but not my shame. The one my duty owes, but my fair name. Despite of death, those dark dishonors use thou shalt not have. I am disgraced, impeached, and baffled here. Pierced to the soul with slander's venom spear, the which no balm can cure, but his hard blood which breathed this poison. Take but my shame and I resign my gauge. My dear, dear Lord, the purest treasure mortal times afford is spotless reputation. That away men are but gilded loam or painted clay. A jewel in a 10 times barred up chest is a bold spirit in a loyal breast. Mine honor is my life. Both grow in one. Take honor from me and my life is done. Then, dear my liege, mine honor let me try, in that I live, and for that will I die.
0: Impressive. Yasuhiko, yes, let me ask a question after that. That was great, Andy. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. wonderful. Yeah. So, Yasuhiko, how does what Andy quoted, is that, I assume that's a Shakespearean. I was out of the room for a second. Yeah, that's something
1: I learned when I was a 10 year old, Yeah.
0: yeah. yeah. But how does, that, wow. how, does that, how does that relate to the, the Japanese Bushido code? Because when you hear that, and you read, you, I, I've read some Japanese literature translated, um, and it strikes me as so similar. It's so much honor and, um, and just principle. Uh, so I'll, I don't want to go on. Well, what was so gutting about that
1: part, Yasuhika? What was so gutting about that thing I read was that, that Richard had to kill him. So he was basically saying, Listen, I'm honorable. Here's the evidence. Everyone knows I'm honorable. You know, uh, what is it? Uh, mine honor is my life. Both grow in one. Take honor from me, and my life is done. You know, so he's saying, This is everything. And the king is looking at him, going, I know, but I, I have to go with the other guys, otherwise. You know, and. and and he has
0: that's to the die. That's, that's
1: now the we get into politics, politics after this. No, no, don't start on that. Let's let's stick with the literature. So, sorry. <laughs> yeah, um, well, uh, you uh, know, it is an
2: interesting, interesting subject. Maybe we can go back to that uh, Bushido process, you know, uh, yeah, uh, later if we have uh, time because it's a very, very interesting subject and we're talking about, uh, uh, you know, UK and Japan. It's very interesting. Uh, um, <clears throat> And probably what we'll talk about, we'll will, we will add to that discussion. So, um, <clears throat> well, where are we? Yeah, so I, I, I started to love English, not the, uh, and uh, didn't read Shakespeare at that time, but then I began to you know, read a lot of books in English, but all Eastern philosophy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, uh, you know, uh, mostly. Then, uh, I met a lot of uh, people from uh, Europe,
3: uh, around the world, in in, in India. And then, when I went back to Japan, I wrote a book called, uh, The Other Shore of Philosophy.
2: And then, uh, people I met in India from California invited me to just visit visit them. So I went to uh,
3: San Francisco uh, June
2: uh, 27th, 1983. And I was in t-shirts and jeans thinking California is very hot. And it was <laughs> people, people wearing, uh, <laughs> uh, well, anyway, uh, after,
3: after, you know, one month of uh,
0: suffering from cold. Yasugyo real quick. Yeah. You never huh? read you I, you you never read Mark Twain then.
2: No, I read the letter, I read the
3: letter.
2: Yes, that's anyway. Then went went back to I uh, went to uh, Los Angeles about uh, about one month later. It, it was much warmer. And uh, uh, well, I, I haven't had a girlfriend who who was from Los, uh, Los Angeles. That's how we <laughs> I got into Los Angeles. But anyway. Uh, when she was showing around the uh, city, she took me to Beverly Hills and uh, we were on the Rodeo Drive and there was a bookstore called, uh, not Rodeo Drive, the Beverly Drive. There's a bookstore called Hunter's Books. It is no longer there, as far as I know. And uh, we got into this bookstore and somehow I felt like a gravitational pull into a particular corner in the bookstore. And I go there. There's a book called Synergetics, Buckminster Fuller. And I open it.
1: I love it Buckminster Fuller. Like a, Fuller. I love Buckminster Fuller. Sorry. Yeah,
2: it's, he, isn't this amazing? And it's like a captured me. Just captured me. Not that I understood everything, obviously not, you know, but it was like a capture. He thinks the, the the way he used the language and the Pure originality of his thinking captured me, and uh, and she told me that the Bakumi Safura was, uh, you know, a famous uh, inventor and stuff like that. But anyway, I bought the book and I also started to like Los Angeles warm and spacious compared to Japan, it is a, very spacious, and that's when I said, Okay, let me, you know. Uh, think about actually, you know, find a way to uh, live in this country for a while. And that year, yeah, it was 1983, but you know, uh, and then, so in 1983, uh, July, I discovered the book of Mr. Fuller. And then I, uh, n- next year, 1984,
3: again in the bookstores, two bookstores in Los Angeles. Same thing happened. The gravitational pull. The first
2: book, the second book after *Baqma Four was called uh, *The Origin of Consciousness in the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind*. Julian, Julian
0: James. James. Huh? Eric Neumann. Or Julian. Yes, Andy. Andy and I both know it well.
2: Yes, and then almost a, a few weeks later, another book called. Uh, uh, Atlas Shrugged.
1: Yes, and ran. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's the only book I haven't finished. I finish every book I read, and Atlas Shrugged's the only one I didn't
0: finish, almost deliberately.
2: Yeah, it is very, very intense. Huh?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um Her anyway. characters are are typical. I, you know, over the years, the chief criticism is like there aren't the people aren't like this. I'm like. That's what's called literature.
1: <laughs> yeah, but the thing is, I think the thing is with Anne Rand, if, if you put Dostoevsky and Raskolnikov and all of, all of the people from his uh, from, you know the, the Brothers Karamazov, if you're talking about Ivan, Alyosha, whatever, next to a, uh, a John Galt or a, any, any of his characters found, uh, Anne, Anne Rand's, the, the battles go on between the characters in Anne Rand's because they're kind of caricatures, which is fine, but it's sort of, it's got a certain level to it, whereas a Dostoevsky, the battles go on kind of within them and In then, it. yeah, it's, 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 it's much deeper. It drives okay.
3: me crazy. Yeah, yeah.
2: Crazy. Uh, as a novelist, I don't, I don't put the eye around at the same category as Dostoevsky. However, uh, the philosophy- so Who's your top, who's your top the
3: echelon? The,
2: the philosophy, um, uh, she expounded through uh, John Garton, others captured me because it was very new to me. You know, de- remember I'm from uh, Buddhist, Taoist, and uh, Indian Hindu tradition, non-political, absolutely non-political, and then going to Buckminster which is, uh, you know, cosmic, mathematical, and then going to, uh, you know, uh, the origin of consciousness, which is it's extremely interesting. It is like a, it, 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 one of the best writers I have ever read in terms of.
0: Uh, All right, so Andy,
2: and, and then comes this Iron Rand. Yeah, expanding upon this philosophy, which I have I have never seen before.
1: Okay. Well, Eric Neumann, the or, the origins of consciousness you talk about, Eric Neumann was uh, he was Jung's best yes. student, and, and like so, i I read that book three times. Um, oh. I read it one year, and then two years later, and then three years later. And every time I read it, it struck me in a completely different way. It's, it's fantastic.
0: So yeah. Andy, it, is, it is a different author. All right, Andy, let me. I, I want to. I want to illustrate or you know, a, a highlight something between Yasuhiko and I. So, <clears throat> so it's very interesting. <clears throat> uh, actually, you know, we're a little bit different in that I read. I read most of Ayn Rand's. Um, nonfiction before I read Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged. But the thing is, is it was gobsmacking to me, I think in a similar way to him in that, um, I've never heard anything. I, I grew, so he, so he was formated or for, you know, formation in the Eastern traditions. I was a fundamentalist born again, Baptist in the United States. And, uh, I read Atlas Shrugged and I'm like, Whoa, (coughs) I've never heard anything like this. (coughs) And excuse me. Uh, but it is quite something that is, uh, you know, and um from my religious background, I mean that's almost like uh it's like listening to the Beatles on a backtrack album that says, you know, Satan is Lord or something like that to the American the American, you know, Southern, very religious uh thing. But nonetheless, nonetheless, Ayn Rand's writings grabbed onto me. Mm-hmm. And I've been insulted all my life uh, because of that, because I must be simple-minded or, or something. Um, but uh, it, it's, it's different ideas that you've not really been exposed to. And at the same time, it's you. if you're honest, if you're an honest person, intellectually honest with yourself, you're like, there's something here. I think Yasuhiko would agree with that. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well,
2: uh, so after this, so three books, you know, I was uh, reading in 1984. And uh, I, I read all, of, I learned it the easiest to understand actually. Yeah, actually, pretty simple in many ways. And I read many of her, you know, non-fiction uh, also. But anyway, um, <clears throat> From that, uh, I was uh, beginning to read uh, uh, Founders of the United States, American uh, you know, uh, Enlightenment thinkers. And I just loved uh, Thomas Paine. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and then I began to appreciate the, the American Founders. Now here's the thing. Uh, as uh, James Madison was extremely clearly aware of it, you know, uh,
3: thinking people disagree. And Constitution
2: and uh, this country designed in such a way that actually disagreement is used. Ideological uh, 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 different perspectives are uh, utilized, a uh, harness to move the country forward is a brilliant uh, system. And Ayn Rand on the other hand is a philosophical tyrant. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know she does not allow anybody to disagree with her to begin with, she sure. does not allow anybody who is as, as smart as she is to be around her. So all of the people she, she had was younger, young people who just worshiped,
3: yes. Mm-hmm. So it
2: has become, uh, as brilliant as she was, uh, it, there was no free thinking. It, it was Iran thinking or nothing. In that sense, it's very similar to Lenin. Lenin, there's a term called Lenin's thing. You know, it is a Lenin's way or highway, no way. You know, the, what is Leninism? It is the way Lenin is thinking at that time. <laughs> right. And Iran is much more consistent, you know, ideologically speaking, but in the same way. Fundamentally, it is a philosophical uh, tyranny. And I did not uh, uh, respect that aspect of Iran. And I did respect uh, founders of United States where they actually openly disagreed and they argued, 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 at the same time, aligned in intention to create a new country and make, you know, uh, Functional society. So uh, I moved away from Iran, but in the in the meantime, I met this uh, uh, brilliant man, uh, Frank R. Wars, that uh, Richard was, uh, you know, uh, uh, talking about. <clears throat> and uh, I translated his book into Japanese, and uh, I wrote something, uh, which was severely edited and cut it. <laughs> Cut out, but uh, that's what Richard read, you know, uh, 1982.
3: You know, 1990, 1990. So I met, I, I encountered Iran L- in 1984. That a lot? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So anyway,
2: so and then Frank A. is was not as dictatorial as as iran But in order to work for him, you have to be in complete agreement with him. Yeah. And uh, there was no space for me to disagree. And he knew that. So the day I began to work for him, 1987, August 1st, Mm -hmm. in Las Vegas, he took me out for lunch
0: Mm -hmm. in the Lake Mead. Yes, I, I've taken him to lunch at Lake Mead. Okay, great. And lots of cops and stuff. Anyway, hey, him and Rosa.
2: Him and Rosa. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And he told me, Yasuhiko, you know, uh, I, I appreciate your thinking and uh, I look forward to working with you. And he said, remember, no matter what happens, <laughs> no matter what happens, please know that my respect for you is forever. Yes. At that time, I didn't know what he meant. After one year, I left a company mm-hmm. because I could not function. Where I cannot disagree. I could not oh, disagree.
0: Yeah, and junior and junior, junior was all about marketing. They see. I, I've heard. You know, I listened to all the like insider tapes and everything like that. And I know. I know that they were. They were. Uh, it seemed to me. My impression is that they were, uh, you know, uh, FRW was a hyper marketer. I mean, he was. I mean, he's a he was a professional poker player, and his book, Poker, and Andy's a a great poker player too. Um, I want to get him that book, but his book on poker is actually a book on. I've
1: got it saved, Richard, by the way, and I'm going to read it. I've just been playing poker, so I've just had a friend from Spain stay for a week, and I've, I've spent probably 30 hours of the last week playing poker, mm. teaching about position, bet-raising sizes, um, profiling people, in, uh, interwaving your, your, between tight, and aggressive, and aggressive, and loose, and playing basically when you're in early position, you want to play tight, play less hands, and when you're in late position, you want to play more hands, all of these things. Uh, I think poker is for right. me, I was, I was just, just a quick thing on this, which is all of these games we play, whether it's chess or go or poker, or for me, they, they relate to when you say children need to play. I think adults in some sense need to too. So it's not just a sort of, you've got um, puzzles and problems. Yeah. Some people say like Kurt says, you've got puzzles and problems. Uh, puzzles are for children and p- problems are for adults. I said, that's absolutely rubbish. And actually I've learned a lot from, um, a lot from, the strategy within games, and not only that, but how to play with people in different sorts of games. I
0: think um, I think Yasuhiko would agree with me that um, uh, what is it? Hey, hang hang on, uh, hang on. I think I actually have it around here. It was it was just, it was just here. Here oh here it is. Mm. Richard, there can you is. send that to me? Yeah, Richard, I have, have it. I, I think Richard. I have it. I think he signed it for me. You know, he sent it to me years and years and years ago, like uh, in 1995 ish or something like that. Um, it to me, Richard? It, it, Andy, it's a sociology book far more than it is how to, you know, really win at poker. His way to win at poker is how do you. And and, and and to his credit, to his credit, he made very, very good distinctions about morals in the game versus outside the game. All right, so in the game, it is a game. So you can, so lying or whatever, or deceiving and everything is totally, totally cool. Richard,
1: Richard can I stop here a second? Because I want to I just sell poker really quickly. I want to express poker in a different way. It's not a game of lying. It's not a game where bluffing is when you're not good and not bluffing. It's a game of risk and it's a game of sociability and it's a game of uh, risk management and, and trading. And it's, it's a game of profiling. It's a game of watching and, and working with the numbers. Where it's a game of paralleling, like omnicentricity. It's like trying to say, right, here's me. Here's what I've done here. I, I've, I've raised and then I've called and then I've raised and then I've called. How does this look to that person, that person, that person, and that person? What did I do last time I was late? I, okay. Wait, okay, no, no, Richard, I, I, let I, me I, let I, me go, I, on. Let I, me go I, on, let me go on. Richard, Richard, let me go on, let me go on. So so from here, then you say to then you say what is that person doing with their uh, with the way that they, they're playing their cards. Then you say how much is in the pot, and then you say how much do I want to raise? So all of these things you're paralleling, you're putting them along, but you can't run them together, otherwise they intermingle. And so that's that's in some sense what, what Yasahiko was talking about on, on his sense of
0: tricity, sorry. Yes, but what, what is brilliant about this book, and I think brilliant in, in a way that that motivated Yasahiko to go and work there for a year with this guy is because in the end, his... Everything you know, everything you know about the, all this raising structure and everything, it's all really social. Because if you have real money at stake, it's different from just like playing slot machines or something like that. It's a social game. Poker is really a social game. And what uh, uh, Frank Wallace um believed he discovered and um and went on to really write a lot about it was the was how that precisely relates to the political antagonism uh political antagonism is the way i want to frame it but I, let's give it to Yasuhiko to uh, talk. Well, I don't think
2: uh, the, the, you are disagreeing with each other. You know, uh, uh, Andy said it is a you know, uh, uh, game of uh, sociability and risk management and requires omniscient way of thinking uh, to be good at it. And so there's no contradiction I can see. And also there's an element of a psychology, yes? Yes. Definitely. Yes, absolutely. And uh, that's also very important psychology of liar <laughs> what do you want to well, read it's, it's, it's,
1: the thing is it's lying but it's also kind of um it's strategic, like, deception.
2: <laughs> strategic like, deception
1: i know i know i think it's it's the the better you get the less you feel it's about lying this is what the professional sense is what i'm i'm on the way i just call myself semi-professional i've been playing since i was five so i've you know wow. 27 20 years and um i think it's about Looking at how people, you know, when they put their chips, when they've looked at their cards, all of these things that when people can't read, they look at me when I'm saying this and think, oh, he's just talking crap. And it's not, it's absolutely not. You follow how someone does something, the intonation, the pace, and you just detect patterns, but you're not detecting them by thinking them. When I, the better I get, the less I'm not sitting thinking, oh, he held his breath. Oh, look, he, ha-. it's, it's, it's a, it's a, underneath the conscious iceberg. It's that, that 99% of the iceberg underneath the water where your brain. And you just get this, this strong um, intuition that the person is lying. I've got a bad hand, he's gone all in, but I've just got this weird feeling that he's lying and I'm beating him, so you call. And in poker, that's called a hero call. And you make a lot of money and then everyone goes, wow. And what you realize is that, that intuition is not always right. And what you're doing by experiencing poker, just like experiencing life, is you're training that intuition to be a little bit less wrong each time. And that's how I feel about poker. It's not so much lying, it's, it's mm. what you're doing is you're scanning for confidence.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. Andy. Andy, I I think I have a good interjection there because um, actually, you know, uh, Yasuhiko worked with him for a year. Uh, I was a friend of him for many years Mm. uh, uh, because after I read the thing and somehow I just ended up being able to connect with him. I met him with him a few times in vegas and we went out to meals together and stuff like that and it a- actually pissed off some of the people who worked for him because it was like i had better access to mm. him than they did um but he liked me uh he just liked me a lot and uh, i remember i remember 9 11 and uh we had we had like a heart heartfelt email exchange because he had he's from new york and he had family there and he was very he was out running incidentally he died he was a avid runner in his uh or his family or his family yeah yeah he was avid runner and he got hit by a chick in a car and it killed him um that's how he died uh, and in 1995 I believe uh, but he was a brilliant man um, I think Askenazi Jew very high IQ sort of dude um, and uh, um, uh, anyway what, I lost my train of thought here what I was saying was that um, his what I got from him in poker was that yes it was a social game but at the same time and here's the funny thing is i'm like well maybe i should get into all this social social sort of like manipulating people and like you say you know andy you know you and i have talked about this many times in in terms of like uh framing people or like if
1: i I say to you richard if i say which do you prefer apples or oranges and then i keep talking Apples, And every time I say apples, I do this. And every time I say oranges, I do this. And then I can say to you, you say you're, you, you prefer oranges. And as you say, or, I say, "Which do you prefer? Apples, oranges. And you say oranges. I do that. I've now anchored you yeah. and this hand to liking. And then I can later in the comment, I can say, blah, blah, Richard. And, and what you think about my idea and what I've done is when I say my idea, I've associated with the, all of this NLP stuff. It's,
0: it's yeah, slightly effective, yeah. but you know. I get it. That but that's the point I wanted to make. Is that I always see that as squishy, and unless you're very very disciplined, right in your profiling and so on, you're gonna fuck up, right? But what FRW did Frank Wallace, um, the guy ego yeah, so worked for, where I first that took note of him was that he was a data guy. I mean, I saw he would, he would literally make graphs of his performance when he went out and played per- poker. So in other words, you don't get to, you don't say, Oh, I'm pretty good at manipulating these people. Give me money. You know, I grew up in Reno, Nevada. The gambling, you know, Nevada Nevada's a gambling state, right? And I noted when I was a kid, my grandmother used to play the slots. You know, there's slots in grocery stores. So you, uh, so you, you know, you, and people used cash back then. Duh, 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 you go and throw your change in the thing, or she'd go out. But I always noted, she told me about every time she won big, but she never actually did a spreadsheet accounting which would have been a loss right so uh in terms of poker you can think you're great and da da and you have a great game every now and then and you take everybody's money but you but frank wallace was a guy who would chart out every PL, every single thing to get to a net profit isn't that right yes yeah, ego
2: I don't play poker and uh, I didn't work for him, or with him uh, when he was into poker. So I'm sure the two of you uh, know much more about it than I do. Uh, But uh, he was, um, the way he thought was extremely interesting. And he is a a chemist and a poker player. And uh, he put it together into kind of philosophy uh which was extremely unique and i liked him very much
0: yeah yeah you told me in 1995 and uh you know you asked
2: me a long time ago how the you know uh buddhist priest from japan got into neotech and the iran and that's probably a very interesting question to ask and also, also it will uh touch upon the issue of uh, integrating east and west yes and, and paradigm. So maybe that's maybe I can talk about it. Yeah, what I would no,
1: ask, ask you, possible, is, is your view on, um, well, I suppose view on this, which is I've obsessed with learning and teaching. Well, I'm obsessed with a lot of things because I'm just interested in everything, I think. But the idea of learning and teaching, as if, you know, I will, me talking to you now is me learning and teaching, and you, you know, it's a constant flow, almost like communication as learning and teaching. And the concept of, trying to understand the best way of learning and the best way of teach the best way for me to learn the best for me to let's say rather than teach communicate and into you know communicate with people and um resolve issues and come to terms with things and so when i'm looking at topics to to learn what i tend to do is go full throttle for them let's or it's um a language or it's going to a certain country, doing, or, or it's a project, or it's a conference, which I'm doing in Lisbon in May, that you're welcome to, you're, you're very much invited to come and speak to, speak out, sorry. So when I look at learning, I think, when I was a kid, the thing, like the thing you do as a six-year-old, slightly, you know, aspie, slightly sort of uh, informational, is you just spend nine hours playing pool, and then I wake up the next day, spend six hours playing tennis, and then I sit reading an encyclopedia until dinner. So it's just sort of overload of hours, and then you become more uh, intense, and then you become you, you start becoming uh, more efficient. And you, you know you go through all of these processes and try and understand how do I become a better learner? How do I how do I understand this stuff better? And so what I started to do was look at learning as a skill. These set of skills we use our tools to do. Whether we're talking, let's say, mastery, the mastery of making a knife or the mastery. And everything we decide to do is like, you can think of it as a tree and all the branches of a tree. And the more you learn at the beginning, the more you open up more and more and more. You can make any shape you like. And so what I do is I, I investigate a topic with which I investigate huge amounts of topics. I put a little bit of time into a lot of them. And I get to that first stage of outness. And I think I'm gonna push through to the next one, the next one, next one. And the deeper you go with any topic, the more that is um, available to you. So so Novak Djokovic today beat Rafa Nadal in a, in a very good match. Unfortunately, like Novak just absolutely outplayed. Him. Very well done. Very well done. And I, I just wanted your thoughts on all that in terms of obviously those two at the absolute peak of the game. And I think they've
3: driven six, seven years through ways that I've been Uh, the last part I couldn't hear, but uh, the sounds.
2: Let's see how to put all this together. Now, <clears throat> um, you know, uh, there's a famous Zen story. Uh, professor of philosophy visit uh, uh, Zen, uh, have a visit with a Zen master. And you know when you go to Zen monastery and Zen temples, you know when you have a conversation with Zen masters, you drink a lot of green tea. <laughs> so he pours green tea and you drink. And at one point, uh, Zen master continues to pour the water into the into the cup. And he's, oh, wow, well, you know you um, you are overflowing with this, and you said yes because. You know, you are you are you are overflowing with your knowledge, and there's no place where I can offer you any any teaching. And uh, so, in terms of you know uh, learning, there's a there the are many ways of talking about language. I mean, learning. One is the your attitude, hmm? your attitude, and uh, actually becoming a learner is an accomplishment there are uh, learning in which you accumulate knowledge uh, develop skills but there's also there's a way of learning that is that actually develops you as a human being and uh, elevate your consciousness and so all of those learnings, <laughs> system learnings, have uh, yeah, a different uh, configuration uh, about which we can talk. Yes, uh, um, But you know, uh, so let me put all things together, including okay. learning. You know, a uh, fundamental uh, feature of what is called Eastern approach, which exists in the West. And fundamental approach of Western philosophy and thought, which also exists in the East. But if we just divide it into this way, like a left and right hemisphere. So I want you to just do some kind of thought experiment
3: here, which also applies to learning. So now there are three people talking,
2: and I have the The world of experience, which my experience, you cannot experience, or Richard cannot experience. I cannot experience your experience, nor Richard's experience, yes? So there's three experiences going on at the same time, yes?
0: Yes.
3: Yes. So you show up in my world of experience, and I say something, and you listen. How do I know that you understood what I said?
2: Since I cannot experience your experience, how do I know j- — j- j- stay with this. How do I know what you, I, I, I know that you understood what I'm, I'm saying? Yes So let's go back to the question. So there are three experiences. And actually, your, the world of your experience is actually contains the universe not the whole sensory perceptual experience conceptual experience sound smell all the things going
3: on in every moment of your life until you you die exist yes that's the experience eastern approach is to really getting into that
2: world of experience so you can say that's purely subjective world in one sense and there's an enormous richness to this. So uh, you can study universe in the, in the way the scientists study universe. That's a beautiful way of studying the universe. But also you can study universe as a part of your uh, world of experience.
1: Well, so how, so is, how... uh,
2: people say there's an inner experience. Inner experience as, as opposed to, uh, you know, uh, and so there's nothing that is outside of your consciousness in that sense. You know, Buckminster said that actually. There's nothing that, is, that exists for you, in your experiences, outside of your consciousness. Yes, And this approach, this approach, is really getting into this particular experience, deeper and deeper and deeper. So when I say I, there is a way of saying I, which is an abstraction, the ego, in the sense that uh, Julian James talks about. It is already an abstract, it is an objectified self, acting as a subject in the field of object and you say you, and uh, Richard say I, all those I exist in the, in the, in the world, that is already one step uh, a one step removed from this direct experience, the world of direct experience. So we have a conversation in that world where it is already an abstraction. So you know, uh, that abstraction is only possible because we share the same
1: language. What do you what do you think of the um, of of Julian James and, uh, and after James there was uh, Dr Ian McGilchrist, um the master and his emissary on the right hemisphere being the master and the left being the emissary to do with obviously um, let's good. call it Excellent. order and Bless
0: chaos. Excellent, and Andy. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, yeah, just you basically
1: eco, yes, Just just because uh, my my backing my my understanding. This is from Jordan Peterson who's talking about order and chaos, and he brought me into this. I've read a lot around it, but then I went to Dr. To Ian McGilchrist, read The Master and His Emistry. I spent three months reading it. So I read it, first half is very scientific and very neuro, neuroscientifical,, neuro, if that could be a word. And the second half is more philosophical. And I think it's interesting, the people I've, I've, sold it, I've told it, uh, to read it, the very scientific minded, very almost scientismy people, slightly autistic side of, the, of, of people reading it, love the first half and think the second half is rubbish. And then the people I see who are more artistic or not necessarily, it's hard to split it. They go, the first half's a bit sort of, a bit over complex, it's a bit refers to too many papers, it's this, it's a bit sort of jolted, but the second half is beautiful. And I think it really reflects nicely. The first half is for the left hemisphere, effectively, and the second half is for the right hemisphere. He's doing that in the writing of the book. And I, I was wondering if you've read it, Yassiko, or your thoughts no, I haven't. on it. No, I haven't. Okay, well, what about Julian James? I mean, it's similar sort of ideas, you know, with a bicameral mind?
2: Yeah, you know, many, many, there are many scholars who actually question his thesis to begin with. But, you know, that is his, his thesis. And uh, it is basically right brain uh, speaking to the, uh, dictating the left brain activities. Yes. But you see, now, this very typical example of Western approach versus Eastern approach. I want you to know. And it is, uh, before we move forward, I just want to really emphasize. When I say Eastern approach, you see, brain is in the world with abstraction. When we talk about brain and the consciousness, we are already talking about abstraction. And the, the, the Eastern approach, the, the, the world of experience, now, right now, you stay with this experience. And this experience will, is learning, experience will show you whatever it is, it is a revelation of your experience on an ongoing basis. And uh, many of the so-called Eastern philosophy is a, basically a report on what is revealed to the author in the state of meditation, in the state of being with experience. And uh, that dimension, that dimension is not pleasant. For example, in the philosophy by Iran. Yes. And people hey, say. Can I? The, and also neither in the
0: Dr. Franca Wars." I'm just and, about to write something down here because what you said, I was like, all right. Because I actually had thought about this um, before, 20 minutes before I talk. It's like, and now I get, get to do it. So
2: you see, it's uh, yeah, when 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 uh, somebody like King River or Sam Harris, those people integrate east and west. Yeah, they are integrating on the basis of Western method, right? Western right. approach. So the they great, never really great. get to the heart of eastern approach.
0: And somebody like you who you know uh well here's right. this, yes.
3: Here's I, what I thought.
0: He, Here's yeah. what I thought about. Give me a chance to ask you. So, I, I, I was sitting there. It was out like 20 minutes before we got on this, and I was sitting there like uh, smoking an American Spirit yellow <laughs> cigarette, and I'm like, thinking, the best?
2: That's the best cigarette,
0: especially yes, in yes, yes, <laughs> Right and and uh, just getting my mind uh, wrapped up and i'm like i got to ask yasahiko about principles versus pragma- pragmatism i mean that's that's a a general view but what i mean is that is that okay okay let's look let's look at a, a very extreme Measure of principle: killing a human, killing another human, right? Now there are there's it's it's hard to count how many exceptions there are for that. You know, war. You're a soldier. Uh, it's self-defense. Uh, it's premeditated, or it's uh, like a crime of passion, and da 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 and and i'm I, I was thinking like it's it's funny, you know Yasuhiko and i I think both generally generally stated come from um, uh, it, at least in this context uh, a a general view of like libertarianism and and we talked about Ayn Rand earlier, and that is like the principled. And there's the randroids who are like principled it's like, no, it's the principle, and I'm like, "Well, yeah, but look at kill a human killing another human there's a, there's a hundred there's dozens at least of qualifiers, like Ooh. context, where you have to integrate contact and why and i thought it's it's interesting that the, that that when someone asserts a, a hard and fast principle um it's interesting that the more that it could affect your life adversely the more you are willing to introduce all these contexts and nuances and say well well what were the actual facts and why did he do it
1: at, one thing that's good and useful to look at here is that the the male female brain difference and the fact that the the female has approximately ten times the amount of um, white matter and men have approximately seven times the amount of gray matter and the, there are many ways you can split the male female. I think actually a lot of people online talk about it too much, but one of the main factors which which is just very empirically you know repeated is that. You can simplify it down to content and context. So obviously, in some sense, content is context and context is content. But the the very autistic or male brain, as we've we we could call it, which is obviously just layering generalizations that a male is often more autistic, autistic often more male, and therefore they also side with the analytical side. Um, so I think the, and the female side on the other one, if, if you speak to someone with a very female brain and who's, who's extremely uh, cooperative, not so, if you layer all the generalizations on each other, all the things that you see as female, you take 10 of them and things that you see as male and you split them outside, you test those people. The very autistic male brain people are all about content. So me and you are talking, they're not looking at what, you're wearing glasses and you've got this and you've got pictures, they're listening to you. They don't care if you're rolling a cigarette, they're gonna listen to you. Whereas if, if you've got a very female brain person, I could be talking to you about something and I'm picking my nails or I'm, I'm playing with my hair and they're, they're looking, going, Oh, what about this? And they're noticing things. And they they've got a much broader perspective. And I, I'm not just saying women are more context, men are more content. Obviously I'm layering generalizations, but I think that's a really good, really good way of looking at it. When you're talking about Randroids, for example, I would suggest that you've got very autistic people who are extremely content, 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 and they're not really, uh, context oriented and they want black and white. That's what I find about autistic people is they want to oversimplify because they want an answer.
2: Andy, this uh, context content is an interesting way of looking at this. So uh, I want to continue my experiment here. So you are with an
3: experience. When can you observe the observer that is observing the experience? So, you
2: stay with your experience in every moment. The, this state of meditation, you know, you, you you are being aware. Can you be aware of the awareness that is taking place within which the experience is taking place? Can you be? Can
3: you observe the observation process, or can you observe the observer that is observing the experience? Well, not think about it. Just look at it. So you are experiencing.
2: And then the observation of experience is going on. It's kind of like can, the, you, uh, 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 can you observe that observation?
0: It's kind of like the infinite. That is that
2: that is a key to key to transcending uh, paradigm paralysis paradisi- and reaching the omnio-centric mind. You well, see, think, because well, the paradigm paradigm is a one sense is a context. At the same time, the when people are, are fixated on paradigm, they are actually uh, completely identi- identified with the content that arises within that uh, paradigm. So my way of saying it is this, so that your, 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 your thought process is going on, can you observe the thought? Of course, during, during you cannot. But you see, the whole movement of mentation. Whole movement of interaction, whole movement of thinking, which you can actually measure, uh, uh, look at in the brain waves and everything, objectively speaking. In your experience, is going on thought, sensation, everything going on. Can you just observe it and then observe that observer? If you can do that, and you can do that, that is a, when you can do that. You are actually outside. You are outside of your mind, and you are outside of your world.
3: And then you can see the paradigm, model, within which you are operating. And it is
2: so, so so as I said, language is a paradigm. You can, this observation, of observation takes place transcendent to uh, the language it is really there's an acute awareness an acute very clear uh uh consciousness existing but at the same time it is not linguistic or paradigmatic you're a supra paradigm and supramental and you are observing this and once a people become able to do that they become freely enter into different paradigm and look at the world that way. And then yeah. we can discuss which paradigm is the best paradigm to look at this thing. You understand?
1: Well, yes, I think what I like to do is to, uh, is to have many views on one particular thing. Yes, so, exactly. Yeah, and, and as you say, you slip into someone else. It's, it's, what I'm not doing is I'm not pretending to be you. I'm not just copying you and saying. Mm, absolutely. But you're, what I'm trying to do is, is um, what's that word? Uh, cooperate with your, um, what's that word, level with, um, what is that word? Make, compatib- compatibilize our um, assumptions, mm-hmm. or at least spot them and say, and I, I find a really good way of dealing with an argument. If let's say we, we say, yes, listen, we've been arguing about this issue, f- uh, about metaphysics or, or epistemology for three hours now, and we, we're going to agree to disagree. But at least if we agree to disagree, we can Say there are your assumptions over there, and do you agree? Yes, I do. We do the Rogerian things. There was a a, a psychologist called uh, Rogers, and he's Carl Rogers, and he said, what you want to do is speak back to someone what they've said, and they'll tell you how correct you are. And so this this kind of approach I find I find very useful. Mm
2: -hmm. But I'll tell you, if you can actually be outside, if you can step outside your mind,
3: uh, you, in my experience shows up as a into your world
2: and it suddenly reveals it itself to me and it is a different, different way of understanding you than interpreting what you're saying from my own paradigm and right. you, that's the secret of uh, Yes, because you, you are interested in this om- omniocentric sh- mind sh- yes, exactly. omnocentricity you, right. you are out
1: of your mind. Is it bimodal? Is it
0: my <laughs> turn?
1: <laughs> Go on.
0: So um uh uh I am I'm I'm very uh glad that Yasaiigo has um uh kept going back to this omnicentric uh omnicentricity uh that I will link uh once we uh you know publish this. But um, you know, it was like what was it? You you published that like five years ago, yes. I think something like that. That video um, oh, 10 I years ago. It, ten I, years I've shared it a thousand times. I Andy told me he is share, he actually shared it like on his phone, like personally to people. It's very interesting, uh it's a very interesting study to share it with people. And to understand who gets it and who doesn't, right? I really Uh, like
3: that, Richard, yeah.
0: It's a a very, because I've, shit, I've watched it a hundred times. I have to, you know, even after I've seen it so many times, every once in a while, I'm like, maybe I can get just another little grain out of it. Um, Because it is, it is, and this is, you know, Uh, it's no secret I'm going on two days from now I'm flying out of the United States for hopefully at least two years and I'm stopped I'm gonna do um, two two months in four months in Southeast Asia but two months in Thailand and two months in uh, Vietnam Laos Cambodia Uh, you know I lived five years in Japan so, and I loved the, the, um that peninsula, you know, only Thailand, really. Thailand, Malaysia, Singapore, stuff like that. So I'm going to do some more exploring. But what I loved about living five years in Japan and traveling all over this A- Asian peninsula so many times over five years, 30 countries, is that I adored the fact that they're not um you know Judeo-Christian ethics. It is it and Yasuhiko yeah, so did not grow up with Judeo-Christian ethics as I did and you did, Andy. And so it has been a lifelong curiosity of mine. And 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 it goes to everything. Like how do men and women operate sexually? Right? Uh all of these things, there's so many and and it gives you this is probably why I'm doing this now, thirty years later, uh, with with Yasiko, which has been a fan of mine for 29 years. Is is it's like I I it's just it it is insatiating to me. It's yeah.
3: I, I no, can't.
0: Uh, go ahead. Uh,
2: yeah. So you and I have been in communication and. Uh, uh, Andy, uh, I found him to be an ex- extraordinary young man. Yes, and uh, I had one clear intention as to uh, wanted to put this dimension to his mind, and um, I'm trying to do that. Uh, you know, uh, so uh, essence of omniscentricity and is to be able to be out of your mind.
3: <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> and and uh, what happened? that your ability to understand different culture and different people, different paradigms, different thoughts, increases, um, in a way that it's really, you start to feel way beyond just the intellectual understanding. So look, uh, he quoted, you know, Shakespeare, you know, uh, 45 minutes ago, and uh, he actually is seeing the, the world from the from the perspective of the character. He actually, he goes out of his mind and goes into uh, their, their mind, their, their world. It is not just understanding what Shakespeare wrote. It is really he has become that character, not because he is that character. And that is, he is already demonstrating the capability. It's amazing that he did that in, when he was 10 years old. But you see, that... Capability and then uh, to me, it is so critical you know, in a human evolution for human beings to be able to actually become omnicentric in this way.
3: What is that's the
2: biggest contribution that the Eastern culture can make to humanity because the, the meditation is that uh, path or method uh, to get into that level of awareness, where you are aware of awareness, you are aware of meditation, you are aware of your experience, you are aware of the world as which you exist, and in which other human beings shows up a portal into the world, that speaks to you, so you don't really. You don't figure out in a way. You kind of understand that world, and that Stand is a under. You know, under. Yeah. So uh, we can interpret this, uh, but you know, it's actually very, very simple. It is experiential, I must say. And then so uh, the limit limitation of Sam Harris and uh, those people—they understand East and West in abstraction. Once, uh, Andy, if you become the master of this, you uh, integrate East and West and feminine and masculine, left and right, <laughs> the so-called functions in a, in a profound way, which yep. involves, you know, be, just beyond your intellect. Mm-hmm. All
0: right. Now, all right, wait, Andy. Now... We're going to have to, we're at, uh, we're at one and a half. Uh,
1: uh, uh, Richard, can I ask one right. more question about the omniocentricity? One All more right. quick question. Right. Uh, yes, Ego, how do you, if you're looking at this um, pathway to omnicentricity of each individual trying to move towards this, um, this way of looking at the world, do you see it as in stages, specific stages? Is, is it just a shift or is it gradational and how would you, how do you shape it in your mind? And what are some models you look at as, let's say for me, how could I, how could I, or how do your students and people you speak to take this pathway through time and experience towards uh, omnicentricity, hopefully? <laughs> the,
2: it just, uh, just like uh, water water boiling. So up to the point of uh, hundred degree Celsius, it is, a, it is a kind of a continuum. And then change of state takes place. Now, in my view, you are very cross you like uh, maybe 95 degrees uh, Celsius. <laughs> all right. You know, uh, because of his, uh, you know, because of his remarkable intelligence. You know, he has read all kinds of things and he understands. it, it. So he has right. used to this already. That's why he understands all so well. Yeah. yeah but, no. You know, it's
3: like
2: it, it is a, pr- it is a kind of practice. You know, it, it is a learning. And then uh, meditation is. Uh, I, nobody found better methodology than meditation in the last 300 years in human history. And you know, it is not that uh, God's monastery is set, it is really uh, just practice you know, of uh, being aware of awareness, within which the world of experience is expressed, that's it. It's very, very, actually very simple. And once this happens, um, or this, they say you are enlightened, <laughs> but it is really very simple uh, happening. There's more, but you know, that is very important. And, Another thing is, something quite interesting is, when this happens, then you become the unique perspective that the universe has never had before, and will never have again. It's like a you, you become like a unique cosmic address. <laughs> yes, <laughs> Because in a way, you know, this experience that you are, it's never a- happened before and will never happen again, and uh, it, it become like a, Really amazing experiment, you know, the universe is conducting, and uh, you your experience your obs- uh, uh, perspective become like a, so singular you, which okay. you can transcend easily to understand others. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, you have a real singular uh, perspective. On the other hand, you become omniscientry, yes. and you are in mind you enjoy thinking at the same time you're transcendent, so, transcendental, right. and all that's right. why I was able to actually absorb Iran and the, the neotech and all those things uh, or easily because you know uh,
0: that was where I was. Well, uh, okay, that's a great, great way, Yasiko, to uh, to let me kind of MC this uh, to the end, but not without you having more of a say, because I want to piss off Andy. Because Andy has had a uh, what is it? A year-long thing where he doesn't do politics, but yet, Yasuhiko, you sent us a draft. Now I'm not going. It, it was a it was a draft of an of a uh, a piece for a private group of intellectuals you are, I'll let you name any names you want, uh, but they're big. Um, And, um, and also uh, I have it up here. I still have it. I have it open. I just read it. I read it. I wanted to read it like right before we got on. Um, And the art of mind control, uh, which is a Quillette, uh, a kid at uh, how whether you speak English or French um, by uh, Aaron Saren, the art of mind control, which is essentially um, uh, what the China about all of what the Chinese are doing, and it's interesting because Yasuhiko is Japanese, um, and we've talked a lot about that sort of thing, and 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 there's a decided difference. Uh, you know, I lived in Japan for five years. Um, I found, you know, I was like, what was it? 84 to 89. So I was like 23 to, uh, and of course I was only interested in pussy and I have, a. I have the a gene that likes, loves Asian women. So I had a very good time there over those five years, especially as an American. Um, but I, I, you know, I, I actually thought I would end up with a Japanese wife. I really, really did. I had many relationships, but the cultural difference ended up being too pronounced for me. And so I didn't at five years many opportunities i could have easily had you know um a japanese wife and bilingual children so um are you
1: sure you haven't got any uh, japanese children richard are you entirely sure
0: uh i have i almost had a filipina or a half filipino one but she actually uh sent me the uh a, um uh, well, she sent me the the sonogram and then the uh, abortion notice. That's actually you
3: wanted
0: to you, want to, do, uh, you know uh, talk about
2: culture, so you know maybe we can talk about this next time. But you see, culture is uh, basically co- collective mind. You know, yes, collective mind. It is a field of uh, you know uh, one step of abs- you know. Um, abstraction when we talk about culture. At the same time, we internalize it, yes? it's become part of us, yes? So there's a cultivation here and a cultivation over there, ongoing interaction. And then, difference in culture is usually determined by the different language. Uh, although, uh, there are about 6,000 languages existing today, and you can say about uh, 10,000 different ethnic groups using 6,000 different languages. So language alone does not determine the difference in culture, but you know, pretty much uh, same way. And of course, English in e- England is different from English in America. So you know, uh, since we have already spoken 90 minutes uh, or whatever, uh, we can talk about this a very interesting subject, culture. What is this culture? You know? And to change, to transform the world, it's also involved a, a transformation of a, a culture and where does consciousness come in language come in thinking come in and what i talked about come in you know there's a whole picture you know and uh, uh, so that's an interesting
3: subject uh,
2: well,
1: we'll yasuhiko, why don't we richard why don't what we do is uh, just continue this with a part two in the next in the next month sometime how okay, this well,
0: well i want i okay yes good i want uh, yasuhiko to close it up though uh, with uh, you know he sent us Uh, this draft half full report and uh, He can use any he can drop any names he wants, but I want him I would like him to give us like perhaps a a 5-10 minute summary of what he's thinking about the the current poly social geopolitical uh, Context right now in the age of 2020 which I, which I noted when he, you know, he's, he's brilliant at, at popping off a, a metaphor that he used, you know, the decade of 2020, vision, right? 20 slash 20, vision. You go, yes yes I
1: really like that. I really like that, Yasuhiko, as well. Carry on, Yasuhiko. Yes.
2: <laughs> I think uh, when I was born, I mean, I, My family had a TV for the first time when I was nine years old. That's how ancient I am. (laughs) And uh, so I have seen the whole change, uh, evolution in the communication system. And uh, many, many, many decades, within my own lifetime, communication has basically been very asymmetric. In the US, in Japan, we have NHK, and then government you know, TV channel, and a few others. And so every, and when you go to school, you have one, one set of uh, you know, textbooks. So education and communication has been very asymmet- uh, asymmetric. One center, and then spreading to everybody. That's how they are able to mind control people. But with the advent of internet and social media, We are now exposed to different perspectives, even different news from many different sources. So the establishment uh, hold on uh, mind controlling the masses and controlling narratives and even the data that people absorb and education, indoctrination, all those things are breaking down. And Trump is the first president who used the social media in a very mastery way to break down this asymmetric you know, communication from the establishment, quoting this fake news, false narratives, and he, somebody has a news on the CBS or New York Times, he immediately counteract. And there are many, many people who agrees and so now at least even if you don't agree with anything he says at least you have an access to different perspectives and different uh, you know information so so we have entered that period where the old establishment establishment structure is breaking down and then people are confused and they don't know what's going on and some people are holding on to you know old you know paradigm <laughs> And some people thinking- are
1: know what the new paradigm is. It's hard to know when we say, because uh, for example, you were talking at the beginning about uh, people can have ideas, but it's about what other people listen to. You can have a, a cult or you can have a following in a good and bad way, but if no one's there listening to you, you you're not successful. So Jordan mm-hmm. Peterson defined creativity in a way saying that creative people are people who think differently and usefully. And I thought it was quite a, an interesting thing to say, You know, anyone can create something or make something, but if no one's one's, um, voting for this, then it's it's not creative in a a communicative and social manner.
2: Yeah. And so, you know, there are a group of people who are talking about uh, sense-making and collective intelligence where, uh, you know, you want to uh, um, present new way of making sense out of this world and collectively developing a movement spontaneous and self-organizing movement to create a new kind of world and uh you know uh, whether or not they want to do it that is what is going on and uh look three of us are talking and there is uh, you know i'm sure we disagree on many many different things but uh, you know there is fundamental alignment here and uh maybe the freed animal is uh, one center of collective intelligence where we, we are coming together, you see. And there will be many different uh, collective, uh, omnicentric, at least polycentric, you know, uh, collective intelligences coming together. And uh, something is going on. And uh, definitely, you know, uh, uh, Trump is, you know, uh, presenting a, uh, his way of sense-making in a very simple, simple manner. And then other opponents also are trying to do that. And we shall see what happens. But, you know, what is important is, you see, the people who have the capability to be out of their mind and being able to think for themselves have a greater advantage in going through this process of confusion. And those of us who have developed a certain degree of uh, um, consciousness and thinking ability can help others
0: Intellectual autonomy is It well. is
3: not
2: agreeing. I'm telling you, it is, you know, people, the moment people start to think, they disagree. <laughs> it is not an agreement, but there's an alignment in creating, you know, new kind of a functional society together. And uh, there are models from the past, you know, to a degree, you know, uh, uh, US constitution worked, British monarchy worked. There are uh, all the models and you can kind of uh, find out what worked what didn't work and integrating those things into a new form that will work for the 21st century society, you know? I really
1: agree with that very
2: much. That's a very interesting uh, project. I think that is extremely interesting project.
0: Yes. Okay. But yeah. All right. Yeah. So I'm going to hold you to the fire here because that was like a little bit squishy, I have to say. All right, so let's get let in the last few minutes here, because Andy and I both read your half full report, and I know it's private, but it is up to you to to um, uh, put forth, you know, whatever names you want to drop or whatever. But I would like you, I, I think you have a very, very precise view on um, not only not only the uh really the philosophy can sit aside because because we're now in such a practical realm of of human uh antagonism that's the word i want to use antagonism because and the antagonism now is like it's at boiling points um I think that you and Andy and I have decent ideas of where where the antagonism is justified uh and where it's not and where it's like really simple and it's like uh, to to drop a couple of uh phrases like solipsism and dunning kruger are my favorites uh, in terms of the left, and I know you're not a you're not a, a, a choir boy or cheerleader for the right, but I think you make the you make valid, critical distinctions between the left and the right in terms of the Dunning Kruger and solipsism and education and uh, and also to to finish it off. Uh, a, bit of a, uh, a bit of a sense of culture, which is what my main uh, idea of this was, is culture. What is culture?
2: Well, as I said in that uh, report, and I have said this many, many times, you know, uh, fundamental uh, dyad, uh, dichotomy, plurality is between liberty and tyranny. Uh, we say conservative and liberals but you know those are conservative what are you trying to conserve <laughs> yeah and liberal, what are you trying to be free from and uh, oftentimes in politics they use words and languages that are imprecise uh, by intention and uh, people get confused you know so there are who call themselves Republican, but maybe their philosophy is more like a Democrat. And Democrats who may have a Republican cause, we don't know. But you see, if you say liberty in tyranny, it is very clear. And uh, so when I look at the politicians and the movement of the world, I I see them in in, in terms of liberty or tyranny. Of course, there's, there has never been 100% liberty and no 100% tyranny, but the, well, well, there have been 100%. Uh, tyranny, in which case society just disappears. <laughs> but anyway, so, uh, so there's a movement toward liberty, a movement toward tyranny, and I will always support the movement that is on, on the side of the liberty, number one. Number two, uh, liberty is internal and external. A person who is not free within can never really create uh, free society. Uh, it is a necessary condition, not sufficient. That's why the Eastern cultures, in there have been, they may have achieved uh, <laughs> uh, internal freedom, but they never had the real uh, external freedom. And uh, in the West, they have some free individuals created the system of liberty, but you know because the uh, majority of people are not internally free, it disappeared. So we need to work on both internal, external uh, liberty and freedom. And uh, I support any movement that is on this direction, into liberty, and try to fight against those movements that are on the, in the direction of tyranny. And you can call it right and left, you know, conservative, libertarian, whatever. Yeah, those names are not exactly uh, defining the, what I'm talking, uh, trying to say. And um, <clears throat> so that's maybe you know, what I, I,
0: I can say. Well. Okay. Uh, yes, I'm gonna wrap this up here in just a couple of minutes, but um, uh, I first uh uh want to thank my um my uh co host Andy Curzon. <laughs> he it's it's hilarious. I co host a show with a with a uh a British uh kind of what is it aristocracy sort of thing at the same time we're we're making jokes about prince harry and all that it's it's brilliant it's brilliant prince
1: harry was a year year above me at school actually did i tell you about the story when i first met him what what happened between us
0: no okay go ahead so i
1: went to Eton, and about a week in uh, probably less than that probably 5 6 days i had a p class like a physical education class and i dressed up in my kit and it was the other end of the school which is a village so it took. 12, 10, 12 minutes to walk to, and I found my way to the uh, to the gym, and there was a boy standing outside with a hockey stick, moving a ball, and, and, and in front of the door, and I said, "Can you uh, can you move?" And it was Prince Harry, and he just put his arms across, and he said, uh, "Nope." And I was like, "Well, no, I mean, I've got to go to my class, can you, you know?" And he said, uh, "I'm Prince and, and anyway, that was the first time. And I decided I was the perfect age to decide that I was going to hate him forever. So I, I at least for in the next 10 years, I, I always sort of, you know, it was just crazy. And it took me. And also he, you know, he quite clearly got the art teacher to help him with his RSA levels. Like he did, instead of doing three A levels, he did two. He did English and art. Uh, and he got a, a D in English and an A in art. And the A in art um, was, in the nicest possible way, quite helped by um, the teacher. Which you know so,
0: hey, but okay, that, that's cool. But I have to I have to also uh, say that uh, that Andy is um, you know I mean obviously the the royal uh, the royal children uh, they typically have to do their military service. Andy is has gone to. Uh, he wants to be a jet pilot for the RAF, and he's uh, he's days away. He's gone through. H- how long is the gauntlet, Anley? A year. Uh,
1: so from uh, November uh, fourteen months ago until I'll find out on Friday the seventeenth. So in five days. So he's
0: going to be a jet pilot for the RAF. Is that cool or what? All right. Yeah, amazing. All right. Easy.
1: Yeah, so Hikar, we'd really like to have you on again. Can, are we okay to call this part A or part one and have you on for a Absolutely. second half? Yes, Why not? It's been a real pleasure, and, and I've got so much more to talk to you and, and listen to you um, talk about.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, it was, ve- it was very great. And, um, you know... Yeah, any- we, we, we didn't have time to go back to
2: Shakespeare and, you know... Uh, uh, s- Here's me the personal so shrug to... So, much, so many more things to talk about.
1: Yes. You're on the same black cloud, you're on huge one. Looks like a foul bombard that would shed its liquor. Anyway, I mean... We- <laughs>
0: you know what? Here's the thing. Here's the- Andy, uh, okay. I predict uh, uh, Trump wins in 2020. How about you, Yes, Ivo.
2: Yes. Uh, if they fail to... Uh, Democrats fail to... Um, uh, use the... Um, uh illegal immigrants effectively yes, yes yeah. that's what they do right right yeah, yeah they they always do but uh, this time maybe they may not be able to in which case there's no, no hope. they can they can you know against trump
0: how about you handy who do you want for president of usa in 2020
1: well who do i want and who do i think will win who do i want is something i'm not going to answer because i don't talk about it who do i think will win is donald trump all right all right all right guys thank you so much and we will uh, we will we will catch on this in the next few weeks Uh, everyone thank you so much for listening and Yaseko thank you again
0: yeah and gentlemen gentlemen, in the the words of an Englishman it was delightful (laughs) (laughs) thank you where do I hit the thing here end recording oh there we go
3: I'm still here in the sound Yaseko thanks very much